interest rates are a little bit higher, it's going to push out a section of the market, which leaves the investors who understand that they're going to have more ability to accumulate properties and being able to refi them later at a lower rate really helps them build that portfolio during this time without having the, the cash buyers come in, buy things up and prices being pushed up a lot higher. Welcome to the Rent to Retirement Podcast, your resource for passive real estate investing and retirement strategies. If you're new to real estate or planning your financial future, you're in the right place. Join us at renttoretirement.com to find your path to financial freedom and an easy, carefree retirement. Enjoy the show. Hey, Rent to Retires, it's Adam Schrader here with another episode, joined as usual by Zach Lamaster, the CEO and founder of Rent to Retirement. And we have brought along two of our mortgage experts today because we have a few things to go over. They are Greg Ernst, the CEO, and Kyle Hurley, who's a manager at North American Financial. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. So it's been an interesting time for a while. I think the last time we spoke, it was also an interesting time. Um, the Fed has come out today. I saw a thing on the news and, you know, very exciting news saying we're going to get to 2%. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow but we're going to get to 2%. Kind of with what's been going on in the market, can you tell us a little bit about have rates been changing much um, in today's world? Because it seems like you know they can go out and spout everything they want, but everything's been pretty stable, it seems. And Adam, can you clarify what you mean by 2%? I don't want oh, anyone sorry. expecting that. 2%, two, a 2 yearly interest. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 2% what? yearly inflation. We've been running um, just, just a little bit over that for the last <laughs> year and a half, two years. Uh, yeah. But they, they keep claiming we're going to get back down to it uh, eventually. Now, they don't define eventually, I don't believe, but... Uh. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, current, the current numbers, um, like you said, just a hair higher than 2%. I think we're at 6.4 right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, really what we saw at the beginning of February, uh, we saw interest rates, I think it, some of our lowest that we've seen in the past 12, uh, probably six to 12 months. Um, and then we had a jobs report come out uh, two days after the Fed meeting with the, the 25 basis point hike, um, which really was a lot higher than what they were expecting. Um, you know, unemployment was at, it came in at 3.4%, which is actually the lowest since 1969. They were projecting 3.6. So, you know, some of those things started to send the market a little um, higher, I, I guess is a good way to put it. The interest rate shot up. Um, but, you know, based on what the Fed is saying today, we have a very, very busy next two weeks uh, with jobs report on Friday, CPI and PPI next week, and then the Fed meeting the following week. Um, they're expecting potentially 50 basis points increase. What, what's important for people to recognize is that when the Fed goes and they raise the interest rates, it doesn't necessarily mean that your interest rate on the mortgage side is going to go up, right? These things are baked in earlier um, as opposed to happening immediately. The investors are looking at all the data and then they want to set that guideline and set that standard moving forward. What we see a lot of the time is when the Fed raises rates and it's not maybe as much as we expected or what they are anticipating, say the 50 basis points, that gives a good omen to the investors. And then you, we actually see a little bit of a dip in the interest rates. Um, at the end of the day, investors just want to see that we're getting inflation under control, that we're getting to those goals of the 2% um, you know, inflation numbers, and that the Fed is being aggressive enough to get us there at the end of the day. So, so tying, tying that back, though, to, to the consumer, to the investor, just to kind of summarize, Kyle, I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sounds like 
we, we've seen some stabilization in, in rates, right, which is good because we haven't uh, continued to see things. I mean, the people were very concerned that there was no cap, right? We were at, at one point, we we're in this environment where rates just kept shooting up and up and up. And now we've kind of seen a stabilization. And, and I, I guess what you're saying is we're probably going to play around the line that we're at now for the foreseeable future with potential of as inflation gets becomes more under control that rates could even start to drop slightly right where no one's anticipating a huge drop um, but it sounds like rates right. have somewhat stabilized and, and might even start to lower a, a little bit is that what you're saying or yeah and that's you know that's really seems to be the message from the fed at this point um i, I think that rates are going to continue to stabilize um as they continue to become aggressive and uh, get inflation under control, we should see the rates start going down by the end of the year. Another big thing to factor in is, you know, we're going into another election cycle. And I think that's important to, to mention as well. Um, you know, they want to see inflation under control, especially going into that. And the anticipation from all of, of all the sources, whether it's the Fed, you're looking at uh, Fannie, Freddie, they're expecting rates to be back down by the end of this year and then definitely going into next year. For investors, this is great, um, ultimately, because this is what we would consider like an accumulation phase, right? When interest rates are a little bit higher, it's going to push out a section of the market, which leaves the investors who understand that, you know, they're going to have more ability to accumulate properties um, and being able to refi them later at a lower rate really helps them build that portfolio during this time without having the, the cash buyers come in, buy things up and prices being pushed up a lot higher. Rates go down, prices will go up. And I'm very glad that you made that point because anytime we talk about where rates could potentially go and if there's a potential for them to go down slightly, uh, sometimes people have the mindset, well, I'm just going to wait, right? And then they base their investing decision around the interest rates, which you should never do, uh, in my opinion, like just look at the time aspect of owning real estate versus waiting, um, you know, and things that you've, you've accumulated through cash flow and debt reduction and tax benefits during that time. Um, but to your point, yeah, if rates do go significantly down in the future, you can always refi. Probably most people won't, though, because you're already well into, unless it's a recent transaction, you're well into that amortization scale paying down your loan. And grand, you know, big picture here is that you're probably not going to hold this property in that loan for 30 years. So it really doesn't matter in the big picture. But more importantly, during times like this, there's an opportunity to come in and make good deals happen that may not be you know, as attractive or as accessible in the future when we do start to see more competition from the investor side if rates come back down. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, 100%. I, I think that, you know, the the higher interest rate market, and we, we had talked about this previously, it, it really goes for the investors at the end of the day. Um, whether you're looking to refinance, whether you're, you're not going to hold the loan or hold the property for, you know, more than a couple of years, all of those things at the end of the day, these our investors are going to be able to accumulate these properties at, you know, whether it's a lower price point, let's just say, you know, when the market, when the rates do go back down property values, if you look at a hundred thousand dollar property, that may go up to 110, 120, right. And that 10 to 20% right there, 10, 10 to $20,000. That's money. If you wait six, nine months, you're not going to be able to get back um, as opposed to paying a slightly higher interest rate. You know, yeah, you may pay a hundred dollars more a month, but, you know, over the scale of a year, that's what, $1,200? <clears throat> that's, that's a lot less to me, exactly. It's a lot less to me than, you know, ten or $20,000. So what we try to do is break that down for, for our investors when we're talking to them at the end of the day and just 
have them understand hard numbers as opposed to percentages and perception, right? Numbers tell the story, percentages, perception don't always do that. Yeah, I love that you use the phrase accumulation market because I haven't haven't heard that before. And I think it's really, I've talked around it. i never actually thought of saying the accumulation market, but really this is the time where, like you were saying, getting the asset is a little bit easier than it was during the COVID time because you're not just right. running and jumping and grabbing whatever you can. You're actually able to, to look around and pick a good deal, which you know we've talked about to our listeners here before. It's not going to be the greatest deal you've ever seen necessarily, um, but if it's a solid deal that works today, it's going to be working in five, 10 years. Um, but looking back at the refinance you talked about, this is something I would love to touch on. When does it make sense to refinance? Because refinances have a cost. Um, obviously, you're, you've got closing costs, you've got you know any appraisals, all of that. There's a cost. So in your mind, is there like an amount that you are able to that you will have to pull out um, for a refinance for cash out, or an amount that the interest rate dropping that really makes it make a lot more sense? Because I have a friend who just refinances every chance he gets on his primary because he's like, I get a lower rate, and I'm like, you're an idiot. Um, but <laughs> you know, it's uh, when does it make sense? Well, I think it's a little bit of a combination between both the loan amount and what the current interest rate is. The um, One of the things that we do offer, offer the RTR customers when they come back to us is that if they come back to us in the first two years, we waive all of our lender fees. So now we don't have lender fees. There's still title and escrow fees in there and obviously an appraisal fee in there, but the rest of those things are being eliminated. So now it's reducing that cost for them to be able to refinance. So when we look at things, normally we use a, at least a minimum of a 1% drop in your interest rate to make it make sense on this. Now that all depends though, based upon the loan amount. So when you get the slightly lower loan amounts on there, you may want to see about an interest one and a half percent drop in the interest rate to make sense for you in there. But that usually you start seeing. So what we do is, is that we talk with the clients, ask them what their plans are for the property. How long are you going to keep it? What's your return on investment? Um, a refinance might take um, 12 months to recoup that money. It might take 36 months to recoup that money. So how long do you plan on keeping that rental property? If they're telling us, hey, we're going to keep this thing for five years. And we look at it and say, hey, look, if we refinance you right now, it's going to take you about 24 months months to, to recoup that money. That means you're going to make three years more of additional profit by keeping it than it makes sense in it. But we don't believe in taking somebody and constantly refinancing them. We usually will tell customers, look, we're watching the market have a steady decline right now. Why don't you write it out a little bit longer in there and, and try to get that full point and a half or maybe 2% drop in your interest rate if that's what we can shoot for. Um, if, but if they have larger loan amounts on there, they need those properties to cash flow a little bit more, then we might look at it at a at a one percent drop on the rate, Adam. I'm I'm glad you brought up that point because that's huge. That's that's something everyone needs to be aware of. And, and while some people jump the gun of like, oh, it's a lower interest rate, I want to refinance. Um, this this needs to be built into your overall investment plan. And I think the key point that Greg just made is what what's your what's your hold period, right? How long are you going to be holding this this property? If you have equity in the property and you may 1031 exchange it over the next one to two years. Do you should you even go through a refi? Pro probably not, right? Continue to to pay down the the principal. You're likely well into that amortization scale, uh, and it's probably just not going to make sense. And as Kyle mentioned, the numbers tell the story. So it's, I personally think just following the math, actually write it out and go through through the different scenarios and see what makes the most sense. But then there are some times when it does make make sense to refi. Certainly, if we get a large reduction in in, in an interest rate. 
that would push more people to refi. And Greg, I want you to state that one more time, what you said about what you guys are offering for, for our clients in terms of that two-year refinance with no fees, because that's huge. That's a huge benefit to work with you guys. And that's that means that's separating you out from many other lenders that are you know just pushing people to refi simply because now they get a rewrite alone, right? That's another loan for them. That's another income source for them. But that goes to show that you're looking out for the investor. So can you state that just one more time? Because I don't want to, I don't want anyone to miss that. Do one line, folks. Absolutely on there. So what we've done specifically for the RTR customers is, is that if you want to refinance that property, you purchase a property from us. If you come back to us within two years, interest rates drop within two years, we're going to waive all of our lender fees on this. Again, you still have title and escrow fees. You would still have appraisal fees, but we're going to be wiping out those lender fees. Now you got to remember most lenders charge almost $2,000 underwriting, processing, tax service, credit reports, all of those things combined into it. We, first of all, set a lower fee for all of the RTR customers. We charge a flat fee of $8.95. That includes everything that we charge. Again, all the things that the, the lender would normally charge. But now when you come back to us for a refinance, we even waive that $8.95 fee that we would normally charge the RTR customers and, and give you even a better opportunity. We wanna see that you're, we're your lender for life on there. So we wanna continue to give you opportunities and reasons to come back to us and be able to continue to work with us in there and, and have trust in us just like they have trust in you guys working with the properties that you deal with. Uh, thank you so much. That's huge. And for anyone listening to this that isn't an R to R client, and you want to reach out to to Greg's team, um, just go ahead and mention you are because <laughs> then you you get access to these benefits. So that's great. So I want to dive into the subject that started off the uh, the idea to start recording, and that is um, Fannie Mae's been making changes. Um, they've been going around and doing a few things here and there that you know are going to impact home buyers and investors specifically. Um, so I wanted to dive into some of those. And um, Greg, I'd like to start, uh, I believe you were going to take the topic of appraisals. This is one of the things that nobody likes getting a low appraisal, um, primarily because, you know, we are pricing ours at market value and sometimes appraisers don't think it is. And then if they don't believe you, you have to convince the same person who just said your home was worth a lower amount that they're wrong. And you know, you know how much people love to admit they were wrong. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you've heard. Um, I don't think it's been 100% finalized yet, but what have you heard is going on and how might that impact uh, investors? Okay. Well, Fannie Mae just recently announced that they're going to be changing what they've done in the past. So about 20 years ago, they released something called a property inspection waiver. Um, it, it's a simple method that when we electronically underwrite the file, it analyzes the data on the file or uh, data on the property and then determines that the property is worth its value. And it'll give us what's called a property inspection waiver. That just means that we don't have to have an appraisal. We pay a small fee to Fannie Mae. It's about $50, but we don't have to have the full $600 to $800 um, appraisal done on this. Well, that went really well for, like I said, for about 20 years. In about 2016, they started pulling back. The Federal Housing Finance Agency said, hey, look, 
some of the things that happened in 2008 may have come from these property inspection waivers. So they started pulling back. So we didn't see as many of them over the last few years. Now, with that said, they said in 20 and 21, that would still save borrowers about two, over $2 billion because of these property inspection waivers. So what they've done is they've tried to take that same concept and get it back and expand it a little bit more so that it will hopefully save customers and save time. Because remember, the, the longest thing in the process of closing is, is getting the title work done and getting the appraisal work done. The work that we do and the work that you guys do, we can normally do in several days on it. But what they do is usually what takes a week to 10 days and throws into the, into the total closing time in there. So what Fannie Mae has done now is, is uh, as of April 15th, they're going to stop calling it property inspection waivers or appraisal waivers. They're going to start calling it value acceptance because they feel that it defines it better. And they're also adding in there two more options. One is a value acceptance plus property data. So what does that mean? So the if the desktop underwriter comes back with a finding of value acceptance plus property data, what it's going to do is it's accepting the property. It does want a little bit more information, but it doesn't need an appraiser to go out there. Now, you're going to have property data collection people that will be able to get this information. Now, this might be real estate agents. It can be an insurance person or it can be an independent company. Now, their costs will be significantly less. $100 to $200 is what they're estimating. They'll go out over and basically with their cell phone, they're going to take some pictures of the house, take some pictures of the inside, upload the information to us. We upload it into Fannie Mae and Fannie Mae accepts the property. Now, we've taken a seven dollars or $800 appraisal and we've dropped it down to $150 to $200 into the saving some money for the customers on it. So in addition to those two options, now they also have a hybrid appraisal and a hybrid means, let's say you get this value acceptance plus property data. And then we find out down the line that either one, you want to change the loan program or something changes in the program that says, wait a second, it no longer is valid for this particular program. They'll allow us to take the data that we've already submitted, submit it to an appraiser. An appraiser just simply edits that into a report. He doesn't actually have to go out to the house. So now, again, it's going to be a significantly reduced fee into it. And then they're going to be able to complete the transaction on it. So if we can get the value acceptance or the value acceptance plus property data, we can cut both cost and time into closing time off of it. If we get the um, hybrid appraisal, it's still going to be a reduced cost, probably still take about the same amount of time though. So when I'm like thinking- It's not a great time to be uh, getting your appraisal license. Uh, <laughs> well, it doesn't require an appraisal license is the key thing in there. Yeah. When, you, when you become a property data collection person in there, all they're doing is they're going to be doing a background check on you and basically give you some limited information to be able to go in because you're not really evaluating the property. Your job is to do nothing but take pictures of the property and submit those pictures to us. Th this is huge. And, and I know we're, this is um, stuff that's just, coming out now and we still have to see how, how it will all shake out in, in the market and, and put into practice. But, but this is huge because the appraisal system that we've held on to for forever um, is there, there's a lot of issues with it. Uh, it causes delays in closing. So when I look from a consumer standpoint, both on the buyer and the seller aspect, because this is very important for sellers to be aware of as, as well. Don't think about this just from a buyer perspective, but when you go to sell your property and pricing it appropriately and having access to, to these um, ways of valuation for your property, it's extremely important to understand. But really, I think this is a huge benefit because this traditional 
stone age appraisal appraisal system that we've been stuck in for so long has been such a pain in the ass for for a long time and it's for it's kind of twofold right it's one you have one individual appraiser which could go out and value a property and they could be backed up for a month and there's nothing you can do right i mean uh, we we saw during the covid time um we call it covid boom because that's what happens um happened during that time there was we were waiting for like you know four to six weeks for an appraisal and that's just dead time there's really nothing so potentially we could speed up that process which would benefit everyone um in in the investing world both on the purchase and sale aspect but also i view this as a more holistic approach to valuation of real estate it's very frustrating when i'm either trying to buy or sell a property and i know the value is there we pull our own comps potentially even had an independent appraisal that came in just fine but then the lender will require um, another appraisal due to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac reg- regulations. And then that appraisal comes in at, at some different valuation and it inhibits the transaction. We know for a fact from like a purchasing side of things that the value is there and we've negotiated that deal with the seller to buy at that value. And we don't want the appraisal standing in the way of getting the loan that we need to purchase that property. Uh, and it's crazy to me sometimes like in the Midwest when we'll see an appraisal from some guy that's an hour away that doesn't really know the market and then he comes in and appraises the property, it's $50,000 under and it, it just stops the transaction, right? And so we have to potentially use a different lender or go through another appraisal process and try to contest that appraisal. And that usually doesn't go anywhere as Adam mentioned, but then you get a second appraisal on the property and it's $10,000 over the asking price, you know? And it's just crazy that to me, when I look at that stuff like that, there's absolutely no reason you should have just one opinion on, on that property valuation that the bank is tied to use. And then get another opinion, and it's so dramatically different. Why are we seeing such huge discrepancies in appraisal value when a savvy investor, whether you're buying or selling, knows the value of it? They've already done that data. So when I look at this, this is a good thing. This is a good move uh, transition that we're going to. It's going to help everyone from the investor perspective, whether you're buying or selling real estate. So I like it. Absolutely. I agree. Yep. And so, Kyle, you were talking a little bit about um, you know the, the seasoning for refinancing. Um, this is something that has it already started or is it coming out soon or talk a little bit about that situation because we have a lot of people who, you know, maybe they've been holding properties for five, six years um, and, you know, they want to refinance, but I think yours is specifically for you buy a property and then you need to refinance or you want to refinance it, right? Yeah. So Fannie and Freddie both came out recently. Um, it is effective now that the seasoning requirements for a cash out refinance specifically um, are now 12 months. So it's time from your first note date when you purchase the property um, until 12 months for the next note date. You have to have that property for at least 12 months in order to do so, um, to do a cash out refinance, not to be confused with a rate and term where you're just, you're dropping the interest rate, um, changing the term of the property. So those you can still do, um, but for the cash out refinance, it's now 12 months. Now, with us here at North American, we do have some avenues, whether it's in uh, what's called the non-QM space, alternative documentation with some of the investors that we work with that will actually allow us to do that um, six months. So if, if an investor, for instance, is looking to pull some of that equity out during that time, there are different avenues that we can look at in the non-QM space to be able to get them to do that. So they maybe they want to expand that portfolio during the um, that six to 12 month period, as opposed to waiting a full year in order to be able to do that. Um, we try to get creative as far as, you know, looking at somebody's portfolio as a whole, um, looking at the different options at our disposal so that we can help them 
um, whether it's leveraging properties that they currently have, uh, even if they've accumulated them recently. And, you know, as, as we've seen, a lot of the properties are jumping up in value um, over time and sometimes very quickly. So, you know, being able to take advantage of that and being able to take some of that value out to now turn around and buy other properties, I think is important to have those options. So let me ask you about a specific scenario. Sorry, Adam, did I cut you off? I just, I just had one quick question there, and that is, I get the why they're doing the appraisal thing. Why yeah. Did they give a reason for why on earth they needed to change the seasoning time for re- cash out refis? I, they didn't give a specific reason. Really, I think it ties back to... Um, looking at the interest rate market and what happened during the, you know, during the pandemic, during COVID, you saw properties go very, very high in value. And when interest rates are extremely low, property values are going to shoot up because there's more of a demand at that time. Um, It's the whole supply and demand thing at the end of the day. Right now, what I would say is they're getting ahead of it because they know that interest rates are a little bit higher right now, obviously not where we all want them to be. But towards the end of the year, with them anticipating the rates being going down, and this, you know, kind of tying back into what we were talking about earlier, the reason for this is they anticipate rates going down. When rates go down, that's going to shoot the demand back up. People are now going to, you know, start pushing property values up again, and really ties back into why it's such a great time for investors to buy now. Um, you know, before those, the property values start skyrocketing up and cash buyers come in when the rates are lower, um, <clears throat> you know, it's definitely a good time. But I think that's really what they're trying to get a hold of. They don't want to see the up and down that they saw over the past three years, two to three years, I should say, um, during COVID. And um, they, they want to protect themselves ultimately. I, I see this making sense. Um, it's not something I necessarily like to hear because if I have equity, I want to have options to access it. And it's good that you mentioned that um, even though these are Fannie Freddie regulations, there are alternative ways to potentially access that equity in less than 12 months. Just another resource you guys offer. So that's that's great to hear. Um, but let's let's go through a scenario. So this is kind of what you're saying is if someone buys a property today and then in six months, interest rates start to come down again and that creates more buyer demand and activity that could also cause you to have increased equity in the property um, that, that will accumulate quickly. And now you want to access that equity. If you're following the traditional Fannie Freddie guidelines, then you have to wait technically 12 months to do a cash out refi on that scenario. But you could have scenarios where you could um, be creative to access that equity quicker, just not you know, non-QM money, money or something like that. So, um, and, and to your point, yes, that's, that's why it's important to be investing in cycles like this and getting ahead of that curve. Obviously, no one knows what the future will bring, but important to be conscious of that. We've seen that time and time again. We know that when when we've gone from a historically all-time low interest rate to being, and, and people view now as being high interest rates, really, they're, they're not that crazy high, uh, relatively speaking to history, right. but comparatively to, you know, the the previous interest rates over the past few years, yes, it would be considered high. So if, if that comes down, even a, I would say a solid point, we're going to see a lot more buyer activity that will cause more competition in the market, less uh, less supply, more demand, as you mentioned, and, and more appreciation. So it is a good time to, I think, invest with that in mind. But you know, you just have to be conscious of how you're accessing that equity. What about a scenario, because we have a lot of people as well that invest with us in new construction projects, whether it's pre-construction where they're ground up or they're you know reserving a property three, six months out before it's actually completed, where they will come into immediate equity. Um, so someone that goes through a construction, let's go through two scenarios and just talk about this. 
I think would be really applicable to our audience and investors. Someone does a pre-construction type of property where they go through a construction loan. It's it's not a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, but um, you know they, they have a, a construction loan in place and they have, call it $80,000 of equity or, or higher by the time that house is completed. Now that they're putting a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac product in place to hold it as a long-term rental, does that mean that it's limited based on, let's say, let's use numbers. Let's say they buy it at 300,000 um, and they sign a contract for it. They, they have a construction loan a year later, 18 months later, the house is built. It's worth 400,000. And this is the first time they're going through a Fannie Freddie product for long-term hold. Is that appraisal going to be based on the 400 value or the purchase price of the 300? So in regards to the appraisal, what they're going to do at the time of a cash out, if you're looking to do the, the cash out refinance and access that equity, um, as long as you have met the six months from the note date, so the final note that you have on the property for the Fannie and Freddie loan, right? Um, at the initial, when you go in contract, let's say the property is worth 300. Um, by the time the project is completed, the property is completed, it's now worth four. What they're going to look at is what the original appraised value is when we order that appraisal initially. Um, at the end, what they're going to do is what's called a 442 or a final inspection, making sure the property is complete. Now, obviously, the value is going to go up during that time, uh, part of the benefit of new construction. Um, once that loan is now closed, there is a note, we're going to turn around six months later and we would order a new appraisal. Uh, what we would do with that new appraisal with some of our non-QM investors, they're going to look at 120%. If they can get a, if the property has gone over 120%, they're going 120% as that value to then turn around and do the cash out. And that'll be what you can ac access at the end of the day. Um, otherwise, you're turning around and you're looking at a full year or they want to see things like, okay, what kind of improvements have been done to the property? That's a little bit more for your turnkey investments and not necessarily the new constructions. So with that scenario, though, that someone has a construction loan and they sign a contract, well, they actually, they own the land. They're building on the land. They take out the personal right. loan. They close. The, that contract was 300000 Technically, if you're using a Fannie Mae product or Freddie Mac to hold a long-term loan, 30 years, that new appraisal, say, comes in a year later when the house is completed at 400000 that is what the loan is being based off of, though, right, is, that, is the four hundred at that point, even though a year previously – they signed a build contract at 300,000 and bought the land for 30 or 40 K. Gotcha. So yeah, the, the value in the loan is going to be based off of the lesser of the two, whether it's the appraised value or the purchase price for the initial loan. So if we buy, you buy a new construction, you go under contract for 300,000 a year later, it's now four. The initial loan is going to be based off of the 300,000 that, and that is the purchase price in the scenario where I'm not in a new construction, like we were talking about where the appraisal was lower, then we would base the loan off of the appraised value as opposed to the purchase price. Um, but that's the Fannie and Freddie guidelines for it is you would base that loan off of either the lower of the two, the purchase price or the, the appraised value. Yeah. We may have to talk offline and run through a scenario because there's, there's the build cost of it. And then there's, there's the market value. And so a lot of these things, you know, that you have the, the, the build cost. And I don't know if, if the loan would be based off of just the build cost, build cost plus the land. We, we have seen some people close their, their recent loans where, they were able to pull some cash out, but not to get too much into the weeds on, on this. Maybe we can do a case study in the future on it. I'm yeah. sure it'll be an hour conversation, but what about a scenario? Okay. Someone puts a deposit down and I think I already know the answer to this, but 
let's say that they're buying a new construction for call it 350. This is where they're not doing ground up construction. Um, they, they're just putting a deposit down to reserve it. The builder is holding the financing and completes it. They buy it at 350. The house is worth 400,000 or 420. Um, but they bought it at 350. That's, that's the actual contract price. So in that scenario, it's not like the appraisal, they can pull cash out at that point because they're buying it at 350, even though they right, have immediate right. equity. So in that scenario, um, they would have to either wait for this 12 month seasoning to access that equity or follow one of these other options with a non-QM lender, as you, as you mentioned, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm clear on that. Um, Adam, what else? Um, I mean, I guess the, the big thing is just, uh, kind of, do you, do you foresee, I mean, we talked before about things being baked in because of the, you know, what the fed has said, you know, 50 basis points, 25, all of that. Um, have they been tracking pretty steadily with what they've said they're going to be doing? I mean, it seems like Jerome Powell's trying to be as, um, as transparent as possible, but, you know, right. looking forward, you know, we talk about rates going up, rates coming down in terms of refinancing. Have they been pretty much staying on path with what they've been telling us they're going to do? Um, you know, I think that they, before the most recent jobs report in CPI, the thought would be yes. Uh, going into the end of last year, they were seeing a decrease in, in the inflation numbers. Um, the jobs report at the beginning of the month, uh, which is based on January, that threw them off. They were they were a little bit off on that, uh, to say the least. So, and then CPI was higher than what they thought. Really, what what's going to be telling is the next two weeks. Uh, we have a jobs report on Friday. Next week, we have CPI and PPI on the 14th and 15th, um, depending on where those numbers come in. And then the Fed meets the following week on the 22nd. So, <clears throat> you know, especially from what Chair Powell was saying today, this morning. If those numbers fall in line or below, it could push the Fed to do a 25 basis point hike as opposed to 50. If they end up coming in higher, then I think they're looking at a 50 basis point hike with a little bit more aggression. Uh, it's always hard to tell at the beginning of the year, the numbers are a little skewed in the beginning of the year um, just because of how they collect their data. But uh, I think that the end of this month will give us a good indicator. And then there's about 45 days or so until the next meeting, which is then in May. Um, so it'll give us a little bit of time for the market to kind of settle out, take all the information in. You know, the jobs report thing, that was the overwhelming thought on that is that although the numbers were higher, they're not, um, as opposed to in the past, they're not as indicative that inflation's not under control. Um, it, the overwhelming consensus is that they do feel like inflation's getting under control. It's just a matter of it might take a little bit longer than they originally thought. Um, and then the numbers are just kind of catching up to that data at the end of the day. And you also see too is, is the um, mortgage-backed securities, they, they like to see um, Powell be aggressive. The more aggressive he is, the more that they feel that he's gonna get this under control. So actually when you see him sometimes do a larger hike and send instead of 25 basis points, 50 basis points, the next day we actually see rates go down a little bit because they they think that he's being, yeah, he's being a little bit more, um, being a little more aggressive on it to try and get that under control. Because again, just like what Kyle had mentioned earlier is that we have an election cycle coming up. So he wants to make sure that by the time we hit that election cycle, which will be at the end of this year, we're gonna start rolling into that, that he wants to be in front of this and so that, that the current administration 
inflation is able to say we've got inflation under control. So you're going to see him, I think, be a little bit overly aggressive. So you're going to start seeing that's why the rates, they've bounced around a little bit, but they've really kind of stabilized for a while. And that means that's our indication that says that we're going to start seeing them recede a little bit here. So we, we really expect within probably the next six months or so, we're going to start seeing those rates soften a little bit. Definitely by the fourth quarter of this year, we'll see them soften up even a little bit more. So it'll be a good time that, like I said, if, if people are taking the advantage right now to be able to purchase and acquire the property at this price, because likelihood is first quarter of next year, you're going to start seeing prices go back up again because interest rates drop back down. I just, I can't believe you'd be so cynical to say this is political. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's hit on two more quick points as we, as we tie up. Um, we were talking about one of, one of these um, before we started recording, but I, I think it'd be important just to touch on a couple of things that are um, relevant to, to anyone taking out a loan. And we get a lot of questions about, so, so one would be um, debt to income. This is a point of confusion. I think for a lot of people on like, how would I qualify um, and I just not not to go down the rabbit hole too much with this, but if we could just get a quick explanation on DTI, really the two questions being, can um, how's D DTI like how's it calculated? What percentage do you typically need people to be in to buy an investment property, and can they use the rental income on year one to offset the debt of that property for a, a rental property? Historically, what we've seen, I know that could vary in future years. But generally speaking, what we've seen over the past is like, or, or what we tell people is that with the type of properties that we invest in and offer to our community, the income is such where it's kind of a wash for the first year. It's not like, like if you have the down payment to buy one property or if you can qualify for one property, but you have the down payment to buy five, you likely will be able to without affecting, significantly affecting your DTI, assuming the rents are where you need them to be to offset that income. So what... I guess I'll stop there. What DTI, how's DTI calculated? What kind of percentage DTI do you need to qualify people? And how is rental income on that property for year one factored in to offset the DTI so they can continue to buy investments? Okay, that's and it, it's funny because that's what we're getting a lot from customers. Either one, how can I buy a property? Is it better for me to buy a property, one property now and then wait three months or six months on the next property? And I always tell the customers the same thing. I said, because the properties are, it's either a wash or you're cash flowing on the properties, that's not adversely affecting your, your debt to income ratio because we're going to take the rental value of that property and we're going to offset that with the income uh, from the or the cost of the mortgage payment on the property. So when those things wash out, it doesn't adversely affect. So it usually comes down to, I always tell people, you have the gas pedal. I said, it really comes down to what you have in the way of down payment. If you have down payments to buy three properties and want to close three properties next month, we'll, we can take care of it. That's not going to be an issue with your debt to income. The set ratio amount is 45%. That's pretty standard. So they want to look at your total debts against what your total income is going to be. And you want a 45% debt to income ratio in there. But like I said, when we talked about this, when they're buying rental properties, rental properties are almost always a wash or their positive income for them. And to answer your other question is, is that yes, if the rental value comes in, so if the rental value comes in at 1800, but the mortgage payment's 1400, as long as we have a rent schedule on there, we can actually use that income the first year. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And so it actually would be to your advantage to, um, assuming the properties are positive cash flow, you could actually be improving your DTI position. And of course, not only initially to be able to buy more real estate, but then in the future, as those rents continue to go up and you have history on those, um, that could certainly put you in a, a better position to um, uh, 
lower your DTI percentage and increase buying power. Second topic I just want to touch on briefly is just an explanation on escrow and prepaids. This is something that we get questions about all the time. And, you know, we'll have our pro forma or any seller or investment agency out there will have a pro forma kind of showing what an estimated closing costs are going to be for the property. They should extrapolate out taxes and insurance to be in a separate line item. But sometimes we get a newer investor that uh, is comparing a pro forma to their loan disclosure, their, their initial loan disclosure from the lender. And they're looking at the, the statement saying, holy cow, I, you know, I was expecting $5,000 of closing costs and I have seven or eight showing here. And then we always have to take the time to explain to them that one, you know, that when you're looking at that total number at the bottom of the disclosure, um, that is not your actual closing costs, right? That includes your tax and insurance, which is shown on the pro forma and a separate line item. It likely includes tax and insurance prepaids, meaning you're paying that and then in your, into your escrow in advance for future years, which also means that when you sell that property, you would likely get a refund for that. That's not a true closing cost and should not be considered one. Yes, it requires more money when you're down and, and it's you know money at the table at closing, but it's not a true closing cost. You're just prepaying for things that are already counted for in the insurance or in the pro forma. And it's, it's something that you, you'll have to pay regardless over time, but it's not a true closing cost. Um, and the second point I think is important for people to understand is that your initial loan disclosure is simply an estimate of, of your tax and insurance, both on, on the amounts that you need for that year, but also prepaids. Um, you know, the, and this is something that lenders just have to do to give you an estimate of what your, your cost could be. Now, the three-day disclosure that you get your final closing disclosure or settlement statement prior to closing on the property, that, that will have your final numbers on it because now you as a lender know exactly what their insurance is going to be because they've had to supply their um, certificate to you of having insurance in place and you know exactly what the taxes are going to be. So is there anything else to add, add to that, gentlemen, in terms of like how to think about um, closing costs and prepaids? And then the second part of this question is, you know, some, sometimes you can not have, you, you're not required to have the lender escrow these, right? So if you're really on the cusp of like, hey, I don't want to pay this additional two grand of prepaid for tax insurance, which can add up if you're buying 10 properties, right? That's a lot of money extra you're paying into prepaids. Um, you can not elect for the lender to to escrow this for you, meaning you don't have to prepay it. That also means that you need to be conscious about paying your own tax and insurance on your own, um, you know, which which is a, a convenience thing, I think. But I mean, talk to me about your opinion on that a little bit. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, both scenarios, whether you have escrows or not, it, neither one, in, in my opinion, is wrong. Um, you know, what we see, and especially with new investors, first-time investors, having the escrow accounts is generally a good thing. New investors, you know, they're getting used to renting out a property, dealing with the property management. They got a mortgage they have to pay. And what we never want to see is something like a, you know, a tax lien or, you know, the property go without homeowner's insurance. And then, um, so having the escrow account in that sense makes a lot of sense for them, just so it's one of those things that's out of sight, out of mind, that's included in their mortgage payment. One big thing to mention, and I think that is important for um, consumers to understand, is that that escrow payment, the taxes and insurance, is not subject to your interest rate, right? So your interest rate is only the principal and interest on the actual loan. It's just getting billed into that mortgage payment at the end of the day. Um, <clears throat> in regards to the escrow accounts, uh, 100%, they, can, they are able to not have an escrow account. Um, now, some investors, some lenders require somewhat of the 
homeowners insurance to be paid through closing, but not the taxes, obviously, um, because they want to see some that the property does have homeowners insurance on it. But then you're, you'll continue or the investor will continue to just pay that monthly after that. Um, and then, yeah, when you go to refi, you'll have, and you'll see it on your mortgage statement, there's what's called an escrow balance, right? Your escrow account balance. When you go to refi, that servicer or whoever is holding the loan at the end of the day will actually refund you that money. But escrow accounts is your money. Um, it's not you know, a charge by anyone. It's not a true closing cost. You're 100% correct on that. Um, you know, it's it's prepaying the taxes and the insurance. Now, for people who have larger portfolios or looking to expand those portfolios relatively quickly, uh, it does make sense in some scenarios to not have an escrow account and to be able to hold on to those couple of thousand dollars extra so that you can turn around and maybe buy another property at the end. Um, and that's a very common scenario. I would say probably with more experienced investors have larger portfolios and are really in that accumulation phase of wanting to get a lot of properties at once. Uh, <clears throat> and that's, you know, something that we try to advise the clients when we're speaking with them, you know, on what scenario they want to move with moving forward. Uh, you know, one thing to note is some investors will have, you know, whether it's a not a rate adjustment, but a cost adjustment in the rate for not having escrows. So that's always something to, to you know, kind of keep in mind. And we want to go through and explain that. And we explain that to the customer, too, at the end of the day. So, you know, it might be slightly higher if there's a discount point or something or a slightly different rate. We're not talking huge here. Um, we're not talking major differences in rates, but it is definitely worth noting. And at the end of the day, you want the, the consumer to be as well informed as possible to make that decision and, that, and try yeah. to help them. That's what it comes down to is just being informed and understanding these things because that's, you know, and, and there's there's a lot of working parts on the, on the lending side. So that's why it's important to have a good lending partner such as yourselves to go through and actually take the time and educate people to allow them to be a more successful and savvy investor. Yeah, Greg, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Again, Greg is the CEO and Kyle is one of the managers at North American Financial. If you need their contact information, head on over to renttoretirement.com. Uh, schedule a time to talk with us. We'll get you their stuff and, you know, like they said before, tell them you came from Rent Retirement and they'll uh, hook you up with some goodies uh, along the way. So that's at renttoretirement.com. You can see those properties to accumulate during this market and get your seasoning going. That's at renttoretirement.com. Don't forget, leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you utilize. Send me a screenshot at podcast at renttoretirement.com. We'll get you a $10 gift card and entered into a $500 closing cost credit. That's podcast at renttoretirement.com. And if you want Zach's copy of top 20 markets to invest in in 2023, email that same podcast at renttoretirement.com and we'll get that sent over to you right away.